So why would somebody heading to college with the intention of becoming an architect end up becoming a clinical psychologist specializing in anxiety, more specifically social anxiety? This is, is the kind of fascinating, fun romp of a story that we dive into with today's guest, Ellen Hendrickson. She is a clinical psychologist who is also the host and producer of the Savage Psychologist podcast. She has been featured in New York Magazine, Psychology Today, Scientific American, all sorts of other super cool places. She earned her PhD at UCLA, completed her training at Harvard Medical School, and is the author of a fantastic new book called How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. I have to confess, <laughs> this was as much fun for me on a personal level as it was professional because I have been somebody who has been on the quieter side and also experienced my fair share of social anxiety in many different scenarios and settings, and still to this day, experience it here and there. So we dive into her own personal journey, and also really a lot of the fundamental concepts and misconceptions around social anxiety, and some great sort of insight on how to move through this kind of a sometimes limiting part of our human experience. Really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. So as a kid, what are you into? I was a quiet kid. I was an early reader. I read when I was three. I distinctly remember my first grade teacher having to go to other classrooms, to like second and third grade classrooms, to go get books for me and to. You oh, know, so you were bring just like back. tearing through. I was just available. ripping through books, and and so yeah, I was I was a a voracious reader, and I think that actually 
informed my later transition to writing. And oh, actually, backing up, I think it actually informed my interest in clinical psychology because it's a story. Because you get to sit down with somebody and say, what happened to you? What's your story? Like, what's, what's, how can I help you? And, and just the, the stories that you hear from clients, the, the stories you're privileged to hear, because oftentimes they will preface that story by saying, I've never told anyone this. And here we go. It's just the, that trust and that privilege is, is, is so humbling and so wonderful. And the more stories you hear, at least for me as a psychologist, the more I realize that people are kind of all the same. And that, like, I'm not special. And and that we all have our neuroses and our foibles, and we all struggle with how we were brought up, and just we all have such room to grow. And it's it's just so it's so wonderful to be able to sit with somebody for an hour and hear a story and be able to like help them tweak it. Like they they take the lead, they do the work, you know, but to be able to to do that. And and to see them then go fly and be free, you know, as right. at the end of their course of therapy. So so were you the kid who everybody came to? Were you the um sort I was of like the good the listener. Advice stand person? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was I was the good listener. Which I am realizing, you know, is is well I have have realized is something that's very valuable and can be rare. And so yeah, I, was, I feel like increasingly it, it really is rare. <laughs> it is, it is. I think, yeah, because I think a true attention is is rare. I think having someone, I, I think that's why some people come to therapy. I mean, people come to therapy for many, many reasons, for personal growth, to work on a particular issue in their life, to conquer anxiety or depression or whatever their issue is. And some people come to be able to just talk and have that listening ear. And that's a totally legit reason. If you just want a witness to your thinking or a witness to your reflections about yourself and your life and why you do things, I think that can be an absolutely legitimate reason. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if the need for that is also going up a lot these days because of technology, as much as it gives, it takes to a certain extent. And absolutely. We're just bombarded with you know constant connection and constant stimulus. And I feel like we we have so much, or not that we have, we choose not to make the time. We mm, choose mm, mm, mm-hmm. not to actually sit across from somebody and say, hey, how are you? How's right. your day going? Right, right. And it's almost like a luxury to, to have that experience yeah. these days. Yeah, the last time I was in New York, I was on the subway and I saw this advertisement for a food delivery service. And it said, eight million people in New York and we help you avoid them all. <laughs> and and it just it just drove home that, yeah, that attention and listening is... And just human interaction and face to face and one on one is is increasingly rare. I think sometimes by by choice and sometimes just by you know by coincidence. Yeah, so, and yeah, I, I think it's so interesting also because you bring up the you know the point of and that's sort of like the typical rap on New York City, right? Sure. But there is some some truth to it. You know, there are some really interesting data. I'm sure you're much better versed in it than I am. That I've seen over the last couple of years that shows that we you know we we've never been more surrounded, never just constantly around people in real life and virtually, yet it seems like the incidence of loneliness mm, is skyrocketing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, I mean, so I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that up because loneliness is a perception, right? Because we can be in a crowd and feel lonely. We can be in solitude and feel completely fulfilled and not lonely at all. And so it's not really the objective aloneness that generates that sensation of loneliness. And 
it's, I, I also want to think about loneliness as a drive. It's kind of like hunger or thirst, like hunger makes you go and seek out a sandwich. You know, thirst makes you go get a glass of water. Loneliness makes you search out social connection. And so I think that with the skyrocketing epidemic of loneliness, that is a sign that we collectively are are needing more social connection, are needing more of this face-to-face. And I think that I, and I can I can see the tide starting to turn a little bit with I mean everybody everywhere I go people are still staring at their phones yeah. certainly <laughs> but I I think there is a sense of not wanting to do that of of wanting to connect in real life of of looking for reasons to put down the phone and I can I can see that just starting to to bubble up in the larger consciousness yeah I mean it's so interesting that that's your observation I'm because I'm curious about that also and I wonder if. I wonder if, to a certain extent, that is a generational thing. Because mm. So I'm, I'm sort of like the the edge of Gen X, and and I I see you know Gen Y and millennials, and and I hate like giant sweeping conversations no, like that. Sure. So it it you know it bugs me like crazy because I didn't come up as a native of having my head in a device oh, yeah. all the time. No, me neither. Whereas you know m- your kids mm-hmm. and my daughter mm-hmm. are coming up in a world where we, they don't know anything but that, right? And I wonder if the experience of loneliness is being felt equally across generations or whether because we've grown up with different assumptions, different expectations, and different sort of rules about social interaction, whether generationally we're feeling it differently as we interact with technology. That's so interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I've never the, seen research on that, actually. Yeah, no, I, have, I haven't seen like compare contrast of generations. I have not seen that. I have seen work on on millennials or, you know, the the depending on what you call them, some people call them generation Z, some people call them the the I gen. But I think that because there is less practice talking face to face, that because you know, if b- before if you needed to find out how to do something, you would ask a friend or ask your neighbor or if you needed directions, you know, you would con- consult a map and you two of you would lean over it and like figure out plot out your right. way and well, now well not if you're a guy yeah. <laughs> no i guess not this is true then then, then you just sally forth and, then, then you and, just get uh, massively lost and right, then finally right. submit to the fact that you have no idea what's going on uh, and then whoever you're with yells at you right. no but or but i guess what i guess what i'm saying is that we've outsourced a lot of what used to be discovered by asking people to technology. We ask Siri or we ask Google or, or we ask Alexa. And, and so I think with the younger generations, because there's just less practice talking face to face, that that they don't have as much experience under their belt. And that creates uncertainty. Like what's going to happen if I ask somebody for direction? What, what happens if I walk into a restaurant and I haven't perused the entire menu online yet? You know, what's going to happen if I don't have a map that tells me step by step where to go? And so I mean, you wrote a book about uncertainty, so you know you know all about this. But uncertainty feeds anxiety, and so that I think not only are younger generations perhaps struggling more with loneliness and and personal connection, but I think there is a skyrocket. I know there is a skyrocketing problem with anxiety and and social anxiety, which we can certainly talk about more. So I I work at Boston University's Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders, and we treat everybody. We treat Boston University students, but also it's a community clinic. And so whoever walks through the door is welcome. And I've noticed that the, the 
the population that we see is skewing younger and younger. Hmm. And so we still get the full range, but there are a lot of college kids, a lot of young, like early 20s. And, and they're really struggling with feeling anxious about their lives, about connection, about just existential, who am I? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. And, and, I, and I do wonder how much of that is related to technology on so many different levels. I'm, I'm also curious because, so if you have a, if you, you, you live and breathe in the clinic where kind of like by its very nature where it is and who it served, a larger number, a larger percentage of the people who come in and seek help are sort of in the you know, college student range. I wonder, you know, whether sort of like people outside of that are also just less willing to seek help for something mm, that maybe mm, they perceive mm-hmm. as just a part of life as they move further into life. That's a that's a really good point. Yeah, I think so. I'm glad you brought that up because I think a parallel reason why we see more and more young people is because the stigma of mental illness is slowly eroding. I think that there is a, thanks thanks to kind of this online culture of like revealing oneself or being more personal or, you know, confessing various problems or, you know, or foibles or whatnot. I think a lot of people are able to to look online and read a story that actually does sound like them and say, oh, this, this, oh, this is so validating. And if somebody else feels like this, that that probably implies that there are a lot of us and and the the stigma is is lifted, and oddly, it takes stigma being lifted to be able to seek help. And I I think, and I wish I wish it wasn't that way. But I think when you realize you're not alone, you don't feel so you don't feel so ashamed. Like if it's if it's so widespread that this has a name, like it has a diagnosis, yeah. then that gives hope and that makes people seek out some assistance. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I know we've seen that it's just, just sort of over the years with what I've been doing and the people I've had an opportunity to sit down with. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of those conversations would have been had quite so easily and quite so publicly five, 10 years ago. Oh, absolutely. I think even just in that window, there's been a real sea change. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. I think it's an awesome thing too. No, I um, love it. Yeah. Especially these days, because, you know, the thing that we're hearing in the news more and more anxiety, yes, and depression, yes, and diagnosis and treatment. But the thing that that has been, I think, terrifying for for so many people is the incidence of people who have suicidal ideation mm. and are actually taking their own lives, mm-hmm. which I don't know whether the numbers are actually going up or whether the focus on reporting mm-hmm. and revealing the truth about the numbers is just being increased. But it seems like that is an increasing and alarming part of sort of the public conversation around the struggles that, that so many of us have. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I don't know. I, I've I've been so with, especially with the suicides of celebrities, like recently, like Kate Spade or Anthony Bourdain. There, there is always this surge of calls to help centers, and and I think it it indicates that. I, I mean, there, there's no way that it could it could that that public suicides could somehow create that level of pain it just it just reveals the pain that was there already and i think that the the fact that people are searching out help is amazing i think that 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 if 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 there's any silver lining to to public tragedy it's it's that it allows people to to reach out and gives them permission to to try to get some help i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about suicide in the sense that there's there's an assumption that whoever commits suicide wants to die and that i think is is a often a myth that really 
people who commit suicide want to end their pain. And that's different. And so, especially for folks who are afflicted with major depression, depression takes away hope and it also takes away efficacy. So there is this sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Things right. will never get better. Right. This is me I for life and this. I can't exactly. deal with that forever. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so the, and so, you know, depression has a funny way of, of kind of worming into your brain and telling you that the way to end your pain would be to not be, to not be here anymore. And so, so I think that in the depths of depression, that can make, that can start to make sense. And so, so I, the, that, that start, wanting to end your pain, not wanting to die necessarily, I think is an important distinction. Then I think there's also the, the distinction of, again, when depression worms into your brain, it can seem like the world would be better off without you. Like a lot of people will say like, oh, how could they kill themselves? They, that's so selfish. He had a family, he had, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think the mindset of uh, someone who is truly suicidal is often that of the world would be better off without me. I should, I would, I would be doing the world a favor by doing this. And so I think, yeah, just to shed some, yeah. some, some light on, uh, on what I think what goes through the, the brains of, yeah. of folks who are facing that. No, I actually appreciate you making that distinction. I think it's a really important one. I wonder whether also you mentioned that and, you know, every time there's some some something in the news that calls to help centers go up dramatically. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's always been that way or what I've seen recently over the last couple of years is that whenever the report the reporting seems to all be coupled now with flashing helpline numbers mm, on the screen mm -hmm. and all over social oh, media. True, and you see true, true. a massive surge of call, 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 call. Like there is there, there's somebody who can help you. This is what you're thinking about now, which, you know, and I wonder how much of it is actually attributed to that, but. That's a good point. I don't know. Yeah. So we kind of jumped into the deep That's end. Yeah, we're all really over the place. That's okay. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, so you're coming up in Texas. You're fascinated. You're a, a book devouring person, mm -hmm. deep into stories. Mm -hmm person who's sort of like in, in the one where people turn to you to tell their stories to architecture. Ah, sure. Where, where, architecture somewhere in my from? research, like the, the, the fact that you were also really fascinated with architecture sure, came up. So where sure, does sure. that fit in? Yeah, no, I, so interestingly, so I, I was an art, art and architectural history major in college, as well as a psychology major. I had, I realized I had accidentally taken every psychology class that I would have needed to get the degree, <laughs> except for statistics. It's like and the world is telling you something. Exactly. Hmm. Like, this is information. <laughs> and so, so I took stats and ended up double majoring. But I also loved art and architectural history because I think that tells a story yeah. as well. And so it tells the story of you know, history through a building or through an object or through an art, a, a painting. And, uh, and so it all, it all comes back to the, to stories yeah. really for me. Yeah. And really uh, the yeah. stories that it sounds like in some way illuminate the human condition. Right. Exactly. Exactly. What happened to you? Yeah. yeah. So you graduate college then with this double major. Sure. Then were you even thinking about potentially going one way or the other, or was it immediately into psychology? No, so it was, it was immediately into architecture. And so oh, I, no I spent a couple of years working at an urban design firm. And so this, I had, so after college, I moved out to Seattle with my boyfriend at the time. And then about a year later, realized I didn't like my relationship where I was living or my job. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was wrong. <laughs> You're like, check, check, check. Yeah, not, we're, yeah. So that, so. So I was miserable, you know, and so it, I, I started to look around and say, okay, how, how can I make this better? 
And so I changed everything at once. And so I broke up with him and moved across the country. I, and my sole criteria was, what in what city do I have the most friends? <laughs> and and so probably legit is it other absolutely right. <laughs> when you're when you're 24 that's right, right. that's what you do and change careers all at once and so I moved to Boston and started working for a psychologist because it be due to the aforementioned gee if I took every psychology course you know by accident and I like had coordinated a peer counseling program in college for fun you know this was not a paid gig and so I was like well maybe maybe I should listen to those things maybe maybe you know this is a sign. And so I was working in a community health center for a psychologist that was, so he was doing therapy for depression with folks who were living with HIV. As he treated their depression and they got better, their biological markers for HIV improved. Hmm. And that hooked me. That was amazing that you can treat depression and your physical well-being improves. Nah. That was super cool. And so I was hooked. <laughs> and so then spent, then I've, since then, have spent the last 12 years bouncing back and forth between the Boston area and California to either finish my professional training or to follow my husband to, to finish his professional training. And so we are finally back in Boston and we are settled and we're we're done after six i think cross country moves <laughs> we're, it's, it's like we're all we we're are not, not moving we're not minimum moving. commitment 10 we, years <laughs> we are living here for the next 30 years yes that's yeah. pretty cool so because yeah. so you ended up in I think ucla um Correct. and yes. then back to Over harvard and boston yep. yep it's i i love the fact that you also the thing that lit you up was this awareness of the fact that there is no separation between mind and body. Like, oh it is a gosh. seamless feedback mechanism. Yes, yes. And I think a lot of us get the fact that if we are in physical pain, mm -hmm. it's going to affect our state of mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people are s still kind of don't quite believe the fact yeah, no, that if we are in psychological pain, right. we will have very real physiological symptomology. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think... Yeah, the mind-body connection is kind of a misnomer because it's really one and the same. There's not this like bridge between them. It's it's really the the overlap of the Venn diagram is way, you know, bigger than we think. Yeah. So did that end up being a focus of yours while you were pursuing education or did it start to broaden out from there? So that particular field is called health psychology and so okay. it's it's the idea that you can, you know, work with the mind, work with like psychological psychologically based therapies to improve physical health outcomes. And so that was my that was my jam for a long time. And and then I I stumbled into this project where a mentor of mine was doing work with stage 4 cancer patients. So so people with metastatic cancer and anxiety. And so he had this interesting spin where it it made sense that they were anxious. Usually when you treat anxiety, you try to change people's thinking and, and challenge their thinking to show like, see, really, you don't have to be anxious right. about it's like, this. It's, it's irrational in some way. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. This isn't logical. This is a thinking right. error. When you have stage four cancer, it makes sense to be anxious. And so it was this very validating therapy. And, and it focused more on like, is this anxiety useful to you? Is this helping you live the life you, you want now? Is this values driven? Do you, do you, what what do you want to be doing as opposed to what do you want to be worrying about and and so so that got me interested in anxiety 
And so I kind of just pivoted my way into the anxiety world. And there, I think I really found my home. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't set <laughs> out. My home, yeah, my home in anxiety. I feel very comfortable in anxiety. And, and so I think I didn't set out to be an anxiety expert, but I think once I found it, I was like, oh, this, yes. Okay. This, this yeah. is, I, I get, I get these people. These are my people. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, I mean, as I, I, you know, I, I talk about in my book, I have a history of social anxiety. Right. I, I know that everybody is different and that a, a client who comes to my office is going to have a very different story than my story. And at the same time, there are things that I get. And like if they, if you know, just various things that they're real, I'm like, oh, I, I, I get that urge or, you know, I, I know what you mean. And I feel like being able to truly empathize, not just kind of cognitively empathize. Like I, you know, we use theory of mind a lot. Like, oh, I can imagine what that was like. I can, I can figure out what your perspective might it's be. It's like, no, it's your lived experience. But if, if it's yeah. one's lived experience, then I feel like there's a special connection there. And I don't, I don't bring my own story into the office. I don't, I don't try to say, well, be like me, you know, or, or this worked for me that no, we're going to work within their values and work within their life. And this is all about them. This is their hour. And at the same time, I enjoy having that, that, that connection. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from moonpig add your favorite photos a heartfelt message and we'll even mail it for you the same day all for just five dollars from mom to grandma we have something to celebrate every mom in your life every mom deserves a moonpig card get 50 percent off your first card at moonpig.com Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. One of the things that you talk about is when we think about this thing called social anxiety, and what do we what do we actually do with that? Is mm. this idea of there's sort of like two tracks? There's change and acceptance. Yes. Tell me more about these. Oh my goodness. So so change is to use a metaphor to, is getting in the ring with your anxiety and going a few rounds. So it's really challenging it and questioning it and saying, really, is that really the case? So so you know, social anxiety predicts that horrible, humiliating things will happen. And so it's saying, well, you know, how likely is that? Like, what really, what are the odds? Or how bad would that really be? That, you know, if if we're predicting that, you know, if we were giving a presentation and we stumble over our words, how bad would that really be? You know, and so we can we can question our our anxiety that way and try to actively change it. We can ask how, well, okay, so let's say the worst case scenario happens. How would I cope? What would I do? How could I handle this? And so that, and that takes away the what ifs and gives a plan, right? So all that is change. And then there's, there's acceptance. And so by acceptance, you know, I, I don't mean resignation. I don't mean like, oh, well, I guess this is just how it's going to be. I mean, I mean more like mindfulness, like, like to look, to get some space between you and what that inner critic is telling you and to, to see it as a thought, to see it as a perception. And so, you know, as like to, to use uh, John Kabat-Zinn's example, to, to try to be behind the waterfall rather than have that waterfall falling on your head and yanking you all around. Because there's a big difference between, so as a social anxiety thought, perhaps between I'm annoying or no one wants me here. There's a difference between that and I'm having the thought that I'm annoying or I'm having the thought that no one wants me here. Those things are really different. One is truth. And one is a thought. And thoughts, you know, can be changed or simply sat with as we go on and, and behave, because thoughts and behavior are different. And so we can make our behavior work in line with our values, even as we carry this thought along with us. Hmm. And that can be very powerful. Got it. And along the acceptance line mm-hmm. um, of exploration, would the the sort of the conversation that you shared earlier around the early work that you had done and the person you were working with around anxiety in the context of people who are living with stage four cancer diagnosis, Mm -hmm. where there is, there's a legitimate reason for the anxiety. So it's, it's, it's more, is that a sort of a scenario where it's like 
how do we become mindful and find a certain level of acceptance with the anxiety that is around this very real circumstance? Sure. Or not yeah. so much. Well, I mean, you can, you can, I think, I think it, anxiety in that circumstance makes sense. Absolutely. And so I think that there you can, you can kind of honor that anxiety and say like, okay, anxiety, I get it. You're trying to keep me safe. You're trying to help me plan for the future. You're, you're trying to, you're trying to tell me what's really important. And at the same time, if it turns into worry where you can't get traction and you're not doing anything, then you ask, is this useful? And you can try to dial that, that back or just say, you know, thanks, anxiety. I really appreciate you trying to help me out here. I'm good. <laughs> or, you know, I'm, I'm going to go take this action now. So thank you. No more need for commentary. And, uh, and so especially, and if the anxiety, you know, still, still, you know, comes up as, you know, even in social anxiety, certainly, even as we go through life and challenge ourselves and grow and stretch and that anxiety lessens, it might pop back up in, in times of stress. And we can still, you know, we can still use the skills and say, you know, thanks. Thanks, anxiety. Oh, here you are again. I appreciate you. And I'm going to, I'm going to move on and, and live my values and act in the way that I know that I want my life to, to be. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. There's a weird, it may be in part because I've been an entrepreneur for so long also. And I'm also, you know, I've sort of woven in and out of this experience of social anxiety. Very often, I think I've learned to almost look for and interpret the embodied feeling of anxiety, especially in the context of social situations, mm. as a signal that I have an opportunity. Oh, yeah. To actually, I was like, okay, so this kind of sucks. I don't feel the way I want to feel. Right. And yet the, the reason I'm feeling this is because there's a blend of fear mm -hmm. and, but they're like, that cannot, that cannot exist without possibility. Too. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's like, okay, so where's, I'm not seeing the possibility, but if I'm feeling it, it has to be there. Where is it? And, and if I was going to act on it, what, what might I do? It's, it's not nearly as rational no, <laughs> or no, linear yeah, process sure. that, but I've noticed myself defaulting to that yeah. over the years more often. And right. I, it must, I'm guessing again, it's because it's just the more I repeat it, the yes. more that becomes more of sort of like the, the more common right. like experience. For me, I try when I, when I have a, a moment where social anxiety comes back, so, so I check in with myself and I, I, I say like, okay, is this something that I really do not want to do? Or is this fear that is getting in my way? Is this something I do want to do, but I'm just scared? Yeah. And if it's the latter, I'm like, well, I guess I have to know. Right. I, you know, like, I know what that means. You know? that, and so, but that's a great, what a great question to kind of like check yeah, in with. Yeah. Because if you don't want, like a, if it's something that you honestly do not want to do, you do not like, no, that's not, that's outside of your values. Don't do that. But if it's something where only fear is standing in the way and you would love to do it, you'd love to be on the other side of it or have done that then then absolutely push through because the things that we feel badly about looking back are not the things that we did they're the things we didn't do and so that's why you know social anxiety is the disorder of mischances is 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 so sad because we there is there is a lot to regret and so but i think again that can be turned into fuel and turned into like okay if it's if i know it's fear and this is within my values here here we go yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, what was at least on some level then was your intellectual curiosity about all this stuff also a bit of a quest to understand how, how 
how you personally could live more I'm comfortable sure, I'm sure. Well, I didn't set out to do yeah. that, but I, I, I yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, there's a saying that, you know, research is me-search, right? right like yeah, everybody always. wants to to learn more about themselves and to and to figure out what makes them tick. And so, yeah, I absolutely, I'm sure that's a huge part of, of why this is of interest to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You use the phrase social anxiety, which is different than sort of anxiety generally. Mm, I guess mm-hmm. they're, they're all different categories. Oh, yeah, to, many different flavors. <laughs> right, yes, like, 30 I'll have one of those, exactly. one of those, one of those. Yes, I'll have an ECD and, uh, yeah, you're right. Talk to me about the distinctions here. Sure. So, okay, so here, let, I'm just going to riff on this for a little bit. Okay. So I guess you could, okay, social anxiety is is self-consciousness on steroids. It is this idea, this perception, I want to emphasize perception, that there's something wrong with us. And that unless we work really hard to conceal this perceived deficiency, it will be revealed and that everybody will will see it and will judge and reject us for it. But the reason that it's a disorder is because this perception is not true. It's either not true at all, it's it's an illusion, or like maybe it's it's like there's a grain of truth in there, but not to the degree that anybody would ever notice or judge you for. So for instance, maybe somebody really does stumble over their words or has trouble with word finding, but it's not to the extent that they perceive that others are noticing or judging them for. Perhaps people do actually blush and and turn quite red if if they're embarrassed or you know are the center of attention. Again, it's it's not to the extent that people would would reject them to the extent that they believe they would. So that's a very long way of saying that that social anxiety can probably be encapsulated in the phrase, it will become obvious that I am blank. So the, the reveal. With other types of anxiety, I would say, so if we're going to talk about like official diagnosable terms, like generalized anxiety, which is kind of worry about, you know, just everyday matters. You kind of like your worries chained together. Like, oh, well, my, my partner's late getting home. Well, I, I hope I hope they're safe. And Oh, by the way, there you know it just it just it, right, the, like the worries exactly yeah. exactly there's no traction the worries the worries just spin out of control. Right. So I'd say that that is encapsulated with the phrase "What if? What if? What if? Oh, what if? What if this? What if this?" Then OCD is could be characterized by did I? It's 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 the doubt. It's the doubting disease. You know, did I check the stove? Right. So you keep did, going back to cycle and cycle did, and cycle. Did I get all the germs off my hands? Huh. Did I did I did I assault that woman? You know, there there's it's the did eyes. Right. Yeah. And that's not trusting one's own memory, not trusting one's own experience. And and always questioning and having that that nagging, torturous doubt come back again and again. So so I think all the all the I mean there's there are others certainly, but you know, the disorders I think can all be boiled down to like one phrase or one hmm. question that that each you know person who suffers that disorder is plagued by. And it seems like the commonality is that there is this perception and and at the same time there's this small potential nugget of truth. Mm, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that you can kind of like your brain kind of just say like there's there's where probably like somebody who who didn't experience this would would Take that nugget of truth and be like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah, yeah it's possible. And right. there's a you know, like 0.1% chance of this, but I'm good. 
Whereas if you if you just keep cycling back to that, or, or if you can't if? let it go, there is, what, I mean, there is a point one percent. Right. That's but, where but, it becomes yeah. right. So yeah. that's where it moves from. Okay, this is just a, a generalized behavior to the the, the level of disorder. What, where is that threshold? Is it is it when it's interfering with your ability to live your everyday life? That's it, exactly what it is. Yes. So so the the threshold for a disorder is distress or impairment. And so 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 you talked about impairment. So it's interfering with your everyday life. You can't live the life that you want. Or it's, you can kind of white knuckle your way through your life, but it's extremely distressing. And so, so for instance, so just to, I'll use me as an example, like something like this, sitting down for an interview that I knew was going to be recorded and then broadcast to the world would have been unthinkable, like I'd say about a decade ago. And, and so I would have been very distressed. Like I probably would have lost sleep over it. I probably would have had GI problems for a number of days beforehand, it would have been extremely distressing. I would not have been able to concentrate on anything else because I knew this was coming up today. This is very different. I, you know, I, I, whenever I do an interview, I actually like to, I'm so nerdy. I like to rate my anxiety quantitatively. And so if zero is, you know, hanging out on the couch, petting my cat, watching Netflix, a hundred is like the worst anxiety I can imagine or like a panic attack. Like I've, as I've done more and more interviews, I've watched that number drop from mm, 60s to 50s to 40s. Last week I did one that was a little bit stressful that popped me back up a little bit. But I, you know, coming coming here today, yeah, 20, yeah, it's it's it, it was I was looking forward to it. It was I, I it's it's so interesting to see the progression of like when you practice something that you're afraid of and you 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 do the thing before you're 100 percent ready to watch oneself get better at it. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like the, the relationship between mood and action. Like we are like the, the, we always want to feel like doing something before we do it. We want to be in the mood to go to the gym or, you know, sit down and write or start our diet or whatever. But really, what happens is if we just lace up our shoes and go to the gym or do the thing first, do the thing yeah. first. Go, yeah, exactly. Then, then our mood catches up. So same thing for action and confidence, right? So if I had waited to feel confident enough to come hang out and you know talk for an hour about m- like my life, oh my God, that, that never would have, I never would have gotten right. You'd there. still be on the couch with the I'd cat. I'd still be on the couch with the cat. I'd feel fine, right? But like that, that wouldn't right, be- But it closes off exactly. so much of life at that point. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, and, that, and it's, it's hard because it, like the, having your anxiety go away, like if you, so for folks with, with social anxiety, the, the MO is to avoid, and I'm, I'm all over the place, so I'll, I'll circle back. But so- and we can avoid in one of two ways. So there's overt avoidance, which is not showing up. So staying on the couch with the cat. Or there's covert avoidance. So there's showing up, but then doing all these little behaviors that artificially tamp down one's anxiety or keep one safe, like avoid eye contact or talk really fast to get it over with or try not to reveal very much about oneself, just to you know keep it close to the vest and and make the other person carry more of the conversation. It could be that we show up to the party, but we scroll through our phone, or we find the host's cat. I'm, I'm, I'm just like checking every box there. Like, oh, well, but, but, yeah, and then, but like we, you know, we all do yeah. some of these things to an extent, sure. certainly. And it's, but it, I guess it's when, you know, again, when it crosses that threshold into distress and impairment is when it becomes a disorder. But yeah, like 
so many of us do do these little behaviors because we're, we're just trying to keep ourselves safe. We're, we're just trying to, we're trying to neutralize. Yeah, we're trying to that, breathe. We're trying to breathe. We're trying to neutralize. <laughs> trying to like feel okay. That anxiety. It's interesting the, the, the way you described the progression of getting comfortable with the process of being interviewed. Similar to my experiences. So I speak mm-hmm. like, and my, my daughter recently said, she's like, like, I don't understand how you can do what you want. Like, why would anyone ever voluntarily like do that? <laughs> Public speaking, and it's number one Because I thought about it. And when I was her age and, and much later in life, I would, I, exact same thing, terrified, mm-hmm. nauseous. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. the, the idea of standing in front of a room of people was the least you know attractive thing I would ever want to do in life. Sure. But then through this sort of like exposure therapy and, and right. over and over That's and exactly over and over, word. it was like, yeah. you know, Susan Kane is a friend. I think she's a yeah, friend of yours yeah, as well, right? Is, yeah. So I remember her year speaking dangerously. Yes. You know, where yes. she took her introverted self mm-hmm. and she's like, this is what I'm going to do for a year. And by the end of that year, she was actually pretty good. Absolutely. Yeah. She was comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And it was through doing it. it was bef- And so, yeah, again, she did it before she was 100% ready. Yeah. You know, she didn't jump into the deep end. She she, you know, it she wasn't, prepared but she, you know, she yeah. prepared absolutely. And, you know, it was, it, I'm sure it was gradual, you know, in terms of like bigger and bigger audiences or, or, you know, revealing more about herself. I'm sure, I'm sure there was some kind of hierarchy involved, but absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's through, through doing the thing that we build the confidence. I have, I have a lot of people come into my office and say, you know, I really want to like kind of hit pause on my life. I want to kind of, you know, just go away for a little while and work on myself and build my confidence and then reemerge into the world and and then start living the life I want to live. And I say, you sound super motivated and let's do it in the opposite order. Like, let's have you start living the life you want to live and your confidence will catch up. Mm-hmm. And And that is always a kind of a terrifying prospect when you're looking at it from that direction. But when you're on the other side, and you can look back. Or so what happens actually is so there's this thing I call the moment where you do something that you never would have done before, but you do it kind of without thinking. Like for social anxiety, you might wave a waiter down for more ketchup, or you might go to a party without thinking of a million reasons to stay home, or you might gladly be a bridesmaid, you know, in your best friend's wedding and speak and give a toast. And you could have never done that when you started this journey. And then you do the thing, you're like, oh. I I never could have done that before. That's so interesting. Like look how far I've come. It's and so as we're as we're gaining confidence and doing the thing and learning how to fight our anxiety, we can't see that in real time. We can only see it in hindsight. We really only see it when we're looking back and we say, "Oh, I just did that." That's that's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And and so that's I feel like that's that's been my story does, as well. Does that moment, so let's say like you're, you're running these little experiments up till that moment, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, step out a little bit here. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there's like this iterative, slow progression of getting a little more comfortable. But then you have that moment where you actually, you become awake to the fact that something really big and different has happened. Mm-hmm. In your experience working with with so many clients and patients over the years, does does the awakening to that moment then in any way accelerate sort of like the path to ease from that moment forward? Or does it just kind of stay incrementally? Yeah, I think, I think the moments help you turbocharge yeah, your- Like a tipping point. Yeah, almost. exactly, exactly. Because I think you realize, oh, you know, if I, if I could do that, what else could I do? <laughs> you know, or, or I think it's, it's, you know what it is? It's, it's evidence. It's proof that, oh, I can change. Or, 
or a, a way a way I like to put it to clients is when you see yourself doing it, you start to believe you can. And so I think once they go through the the anxiety, you know, not not around it, not trying to avoid it either overtly or covertly, but go th- go through it and and do the thing. And again, again, you don't have to jump in the deep end. You don't have to do you know something that would be a hundred on the scale for you right away. You know, you absolutely start with the twenties and work your way up. But but I think once once they experience that, like oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, I can maybe I maybe I can stretch and grow a little more. And now maybe I can stretch and grow a little more. And it's just so I love working with people with social anxiety because. Inevitably, they are lovely people. I, I think their their social anxiety tends to be a package deal. Where on the so if you reel back caring too much about what people think of you, if you if you kind of reel that in a little bit, you simply get caring about people, and that and that's a wonderful thing. And it hangs together with you know conscientiousness and empathy and often being a good listener and and so it's all these lovely characteristics. And I and I I am privileged to help these folks realize how amazing and cool they are because they've been walking around with this perceived deficiency. And, and so to have them not only disprove that, that deficiency, that when, as that goes away, we can kind of edge it out and the, the realization that, that, oh, hey, wait, I, I am pretty cool or I am, you know, competent or, kind or whatever like that, that takes up more of the space as we edge out the the perceived deficiency. And so that that process is really amazing to yeah. watch. So then then the the sort of more positive traits or qualities that I guess are often associated mm, with social mm-hmm. anxiety, as you work with the social anxiety to help it, to help minimize it or help it go away, those those same traits mm-hmm. re- remain though. Correct. Exactly. I'm glad you said that. Yes. Yes. Those do not. Those do not recede. Right. Right. The is, fear does. Yeah. Right. But those don't. Yeah. Right. Are, are are those traits? Are we talking about sort of like the big five or other? Are are there specific things mm. that are like really correlated with 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 people who tend to have to show up with social anxiety? Sure. Yeah. It's not necessarily the big five because okay. So for instance, so for like introversion extroversion, you can be socially anxious and be either of those. We often think of it correlating with introversion sure. because those can kind of oftentimes seem like the same thing. You know, there's some inhibition, there, you know, there's the tendency to be quiet, but you can absolutely be an extrovert and be socially anxious. So and like so, what would an example of that? Yeah. Be? So for example, I was talking to a socially anxious extrovert the other day. And so he he is a teacher and also a stand-up comic. He loves being on stage. He gets energy from the crowd. He gets energy from being in front of people, and he worries that they all hate him. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like every comic ever. Right, right. Ever Seriously, yeah, that's a, good, that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, but he, and so he, he, he worries that he is going to be, you know, rejected by all these people that he gets his energy from. It's really a hard place to be because if you are not around people. If you're not getting your energy, you end up sluggish and bored. But then if you are around people, you end up scared. And so it's a, it's a, I, I, my heart goes out to socially anxious extroverts. That's a hard place to be. Is it, how do you approach, how do you approach that? Because sure. that's got to be very different. <laughs> so and the, the, the same, the same roots are, you know, I mean, it may give rise to different flowers, you know, yeah. like the, the socially anxious extrovert, socially anxious introvert, but the, the fundamentals are, are the same. And so so, you know, there are various techniques that, that we use and that, you know, I talk about in the book that are, are pretty straightforward and, and work quite nicely. So, yeah. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah. As you were mentioning these sort of moments, something popped into my head as well, which is that, so I, I grew up and to this day, I remain probably somewhat socially anxious. Mm, I, I would think never guess. It has gotten way, way, sure, way sure, better. Sure. Yeah. As a kid, I was much more so. And I remember in college, I've also been an entrepreneur my whole life. Mm-hmm. And um, I, was, I was a club DJ in college. So I was always surrounded by mass numbers of people in loud sure. environments, but I was behind a booth controlling the entire social dynamic. You had a role dynamic. to play. Exactly. Yes. You, got, you figured it out early. Right. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. You got if it. I was at a party, yes. I would show up. And I was the person who was in the kitchen helping out. Yes. I was like, okay, I yes. have a job. I have yes. a job, so I'm good. Yep. But what popped into my mind as you were talking about moments was... Shortly after college, I decided to jump on a plane and spend three months backpacking in Australia on my own. Not because I wanted to, but because my friend who I was going to go with bailed. Oh, no. Last minute. So I decided to go. And there's there's a moment that has stayed with me some 30 years later, which is this seemingly innocuous, like it happened in a split second. It was small. It was nothing. And yet for some reason, I still remember today. Mm-hmm. And it was when I showed up in a tiny little backpacker's town in the northeast tip of Australia I was learning how to scuba dive for a week. I was in a group of about 20 other people in their young 20s. And we broke for lunch and everyone went across the street to you know, like a, a little place where you could grab a tray of food. And I grabbed my tray of food. I turned around. It's just me. And I realized there are, there are, there are a couple of other people in my class, women, who are sitting at a table. Oh, I didn't know I hadn't spoken with. And something in my head made me say, Okay, so I can either go and sit alone at a table, mm-hmm. but if I do that, there's a really good chance I'm spending the next three months alone, mm. or I can make myself really uncomfortable. 
and go and say, hey, my name is Jonathan. Mind if I join you? Which is what I did. Good. And that became some of the three most incredible months of my life. Amazing. And I had like friends that would go back and forth as we, you know, all hostile through. And in theory, that is the tiniest, silliest little moment. But that's yet, so hard. Yet, like from so, so decades many people. later, yeah. it stays with me. So, so clearly it was something bigger for me. Yeah. No. And I think so. So you said that you, you know, you were a lot shyer as a child. And I think just to give some numbers to this and some context for how common this really is. So, so shy is, is just another, like an everyday way of saying socially anxious. And so if you poll a bunch of people and you ask everybody, are you shy? So you don't, you don't say, are you socially anxious? Like you don't use the technical term. 40% of people will say, yeah, I'm shy. That's a lot of people. <laughs> that's, you know, that's that's four out of ten. And but then if you change the question in your poll and you say, have you ever been like dispositionally shy? Like not not have you had a shy moment, but like where, did you have you ever considered yourself to be shy? Right, like an identity level almost. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So like were you shy as a child? Were you shy, were you like awkward as a teenager? Then 80% of people say yes. And so that's that's the vast majority of us. And then, you know, all of us with the, you know, the exception of the 1% of us who are psychopaths have, you know, the 99% have experienced socially anxious moments. Like there there've always been you know, either you know you have to public speak or it's the first day of school or the first day of a new job where you feel like you're going to be revealed as a fraud or revealed as something deficient. We've all had those moments. And, and so I think it's really common, but, but so many people don't, don't talk about it. And those, those moments that like, just like what you mentioned, like introducing yourself to strangers or, you know, breaking into a, an already formed group or, you know, being, being one in this new group of, of 20, like that, that's actually quite difficult for, I'd say the majority of us. So, so, you know, Good for you for, for breaking through that. Cause I think it would have been so much easier to go and sit by yourself. But there so at the beginning I was talking about the the phrases that kind of encapsulate each disorder. And so the so social anxiety is sometimes called the disorder of missed chances. And I think that's that's such an accurate term because inhibition or the questioning of of am I going to be revealed for this, you know, this mistaken thing that I, you know, I think is wrong with me makes us pass up so many chances. Like, so for instance, we might be sitting in a meeting at work and we have an idea, but we don't say it. The moment passes because we're not sure how to say it, or we just feel too awkward, or we're not sure how to break into conversation. That's another thing that a lot of folks with social anxiety have a tough time with. Like, how do, how do I break into an already going on conversation? And then the moment passes. And then someone else says your idea and you like, you know, you silently you know, just rail against everything and say, ah, oh, that was my idea. Or, 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 you know, we decide not to ask out our crush or we decide not to join the table of friends or we decide to eat lunch in our office as opposed to in the break room with our colleagues. And so there, there are these missed chances. And it, and I think the, the flip side of that is that there are so many chances to turn that around, to join the friends, to or to join the strangers, as it were, to try to ask the questions. That every every day there are opportunities to to turn it around, to stretch and grow, and yeah. to 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 try again. The eighty percent to forty percent to me is mm-hmm. kind of miraculous. Oh, isn't that amazing? Because yeah, I mean, it really reinforces this idea yeah. of like because I think a lot of people feel well, if this is me, this is me for life. It's kind of the mm-hmm. way it's, it's the way I am, right? And I think when we talk about 
things like social orientations, like introversion, ambiversion, extroversion, mm-hmm. there's maybe a stronger argument that yes, that is more of like a deeply ingrained and less changeable sure. phenomenon. Nor should that. it be changed, right? Right. But in the context of this, you know, like the this overlay of social anxiety, which is sort of this perception. Yes. The idea that in in some way, shape, or form, eight percent of us have felt that. And over time, probably without deliberately trying to change it, we've just ended up doing things or trying things that have let a lot of us feel a lot more comfortable. So it's like, it's this really big piece of evidence that says, yes, in fact, this, we can feel differently. And what if we actually invested our energy in intentionally doing the things that make us move along that sort of like continuum faster? Exactly. Because I think that, you know, we can't avoid everything. Like the, because social anxiety is really fed and watered by avoidance, whether that's that overt or the covert. And so as we go through life and get older, we can't avoid everything. And so just, just incidentally, we're going to learn, we're going to refute the two lies of anxiety, which are that the worst case scenario is definitely going to happen. Like the, the worst, whatever our anxious brains can come up with is a foregone conclusion. So that's one lie. And the second lie of social anxiety is you can't handle it anyway. That whatever situation life throws at you, you're going to be unable to cope. And so just just getting older and and living our lives again we can't avoid things and so we're going to slowly accumulate this evidence that oh wait the worst case scenario doesn't usually happen that usually people are friendly and things are benign and i ask for help and i get it or that people are happy to do favors or be asked questions or start a conversation or hear about me and that even if things do not go perfectly or even well you know, I can cope. I can handle it. I can I can reach out and talk to somebody who I love and trust and and they can give me a pep talk or I can figure it out if things don't don't unfold according to how I thought they were going to or even if things go really wrong, you know, I can I can take some time out and do some self-care and bring myself back. And so we we learn to refute those two lies just by getting older. But but absolutely, if we can be intentional about it and try to think of some things that, you know, maybe if I could conquer this little fear or this little fear or, or just do, even do it on the fly. Like I could, just like your story, like I could either go sit, eat lunch alone, or I could go join this table. Okay. Here's my, here's my decision tree point. And if we take that, you know, that harder road in, in the moment, it pays off and we learn. Absolutely. But it is, it is hard and that avoidance. So I think had, had you gone and you know, sat by yourself, your anxiety would have diminished. And that, and that is like crack, like having your anxiety go away is really reinforcing. But at the same time, it's, it's that mischance. Right. And so, I mean, the quality yeah, of my life exactly. would have diminished along with exactly. it. Right. And right. that was, there was something in that moment that made mm-hmm. me realize that. Oh yeah. And I was, especially, I think because, you know, like I had my ticket three months down the road, I knew I wasn't. Yeah, I, didn't, I think I didn't even have the money to change sure. it. I was like, "This is <laughs> no here. for today. This is no for three months." Yeah. If I say no now, Got and it. it kind of dawned on me. And I was like, "That's not okay." Right. You know, I'm right. here to to do something different, to experience something differently than that. So, you as a as a, as a as an empathetic feeling human being, sitting across from people who are sharing these stories with you mm-hmm. every day for months and years. That's got to, how do you just on a personal level process that and be okay? How do you, do you have really clear boundaries where it just bounces off of you or like, do you feel it? That's a, that's a great question. I, so I, I, I can definitely, I'm genuine when I show up. I mean, especially because some of this is your lived experience. So there's got to be some like, wow, I really feel that. 
Yeah, I, 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 so when I, when I'm working with somebody, it's, I, they get my full attention. They, you know, I, I, I bring who I am to the room. Absolutely. It's genuine. And, but I, I have learned, you know, certainly not, not to take it home that, that I know, you know, it's, it's, you know, that it would be inappropriate for me to take that on and to meld our lives outside of the, you know, the therapy room that way at the same time that, yeah, it's it's it can it it's it's okay for a therapist to to be moved to tears sometimes or to to really, you know, have one's heart break on behalf, you know, of or on on hearing a a tragic story. I, you know, therapists are humans and so, you know, I I think that it's a myth that we somehow have to sit there with stone faces and writing on a clipboard, you know, that that yeah, there it evokes real feeling and again because I do have some lived experience with with social anxiety that yeah it's 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 a true connection when a tragic story is told they the the client doesn't want somebody to just cry along with them they want to move forward and so I think that the job there is to provide that hope and to keep the movie rolling I think so often we we tell our narrative and we stop the movie at the low point. We stop at either the, you know, the point that is the scariest or the worst or the most tragic. And so what, what my job is to do there is to help them keep the movie going until we get them to a point where they're safe and that they have gotten out of, you know, whatever pain that they are, are in. And so I think it's important to, to connect, not just to cry along with them, but to connect and to feel compassion and to have that compassion compel you into action. And then, then that's where, you know, my training comes in and I can say, okay, well, let's try this technique or let's try this technique. And then they, they do the work. Like I, I don't take the credit for, for that at all. That's, you know, they, they are the ones who are, are really doing the, the heavy lifting. And I, I respect that. And then we, we work together to get them to where, to where they're, they're doing better and feel safer and, and are feeling more confident. Which makes a lot of sense. And you're human. <laughs> Absolutely. And yes, big, big hands. I'm, I'm yeah. just, I have sort of a fascination of people who are in helping professions. Mm, um, mm, mm-hmm. And the closer they are to helping people who've gone through real trauma. It's been interesting for me to sort of have conversations to, and observe that very often it's not unusual for people who, for example, provide aid to people in really tough circumstances or, or PTSD and mm. end up with their own PTSD oh, sure, from no. having provided care. Yeah, yeah. So I'm always Secondary kind of curious how, how you take care of yourself, like uh, how you actually, uh, like on a personal level, how do you live your good life? How do you continue to be okay? It's got to be stunningly nourishing to you when you see a, a positive effect and positive oh, outcomes with your patients. It's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think so. So the yeah, what keeps me going is is seeing people improve, and yeah, seeing that this does make a difference. And and my job is to make myself obsolete. Like I, my job is to take the skills and to transfer them to whoever I'm working with, and then have them go fly on their own. My job is to not have a job anymore. <laughs> and unfortunately, there is enough you know anxiety and depression in this world that I will always have a job. But I think that it's it's important to either either one by one, you know, in the clinic or or many at once through a book or through some other kind of project to be able to to help people find their you know their their the the answer the the balance the the refutation 
of what anxiety is telling them. So anxiety is telling them that, you know, there's something wrong with you. People will see you can't do that or it's, you know, their anxiety is criticizing them. And so to, to help them move on from, from that and to get out from under that is so rewarding and, and really fuels me. Yeah. Is, is, is that, was that the driving reason for you to write a book? Because books aren't necessarily easy. No, I easy know. This, this, this is true. This is true. So, so yeah. So I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of, of reasons. And so one was absolutely yes, that I wanted, I was getting frustrated with helping people just one at a time. And, and I, I love doing that. I still, I still do that. But there was the sense that this, this, this could be more useful to more people. And I was also frustrated by being in academia when I made the decision to kind of, kind of jump ship from being a full-time academic to being kind of like a you know, part-time academic. It was because I, I was frustrated that there was such cool research going on, that there was that that there were things that were happening that could help a lot of people, but they never got out of the academic silo. And and so I wanted to be the person who could translate that and could do, I mean, in, in scientific terms, what I do is called dissemination. So you just, you take what's in the silo and you you show everybody, you know, outside the silo. And so there was a sense of wanting to share that, but also just, I mean, just personally, that was, there was my love for stories and and wanting to 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 try writing something besides grants and papers. And and so um it, it was a hard decision. So I so I had I was in California and you know are bouncing back and forth, and I had just made faculty at at Stanford, which, you know, by by any measure is like, okay, I've made right, it. Like, like done. I'm done. <laughs> exactly. And and a couple of things happened. So one is that in a lot of research institutions, you have to bring your own salary. So mm, they will, right. you know, they'll they'll give you an office and they'll give you a title, but you have to fund yourself through grants. And so I was doing okay at that. Not not amazing, but the the climate is 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 really difficult. Ask any you know academic. And so I had just missed getting a grant funded. And my reaction when I had learned that was actually relief. And I said, uh oh, uh, like, hmm. <laughs> that's information. <laughs> And so I realized that what I liked is I liked writing the project. I liked pulling together the research and like making an argument and making it really clear and and doing the writing and proposing the project. And then I like writing the stuff afterwards, like this is what we found and here's the narrative and like this is what happened when we worked with all these people and this is how they improved. But I didn't like actually doing the project. Mm. So So that was information. And then the second thing is that my mentor retired early because she just got so sick of the academic climate and just how difficult it was to justify your existence. And so I said, you know, this is a sign. <laughs> and and so I I I knew I wanted to stay in clinical work in in working with with clients, but decided, you know, okay, I think I think this is a sign and it's time to to try to see if I can make something out of my love for stories and writing and try to help some people with with the science at the same time. And and so what what happened first I basically just threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall for for about a year. Yeah, just you just ter- you know terrible ideas gave way to less terrible ideas. And and so eventually I had stumbled across a a website that was a consortium of of experts and I used there was there was one website in particular called Grammar Girl. That, that I used for writing. And I was clicking around. I was like, you know, 
they have all these different experts. There's a doctor, there's a fitness guy, there's, you know, there's a math guy. They don't have a mental health person. Hmm. And so I cold emailed the editor <laughs> and and said, hey, are you looking for someone to do a psychology column? Could I, do you need a, a guest spot? And she said, oh my gosh, what amazing timing. We've been getting requests for someone who knows about psychology and mental health and well-being. Would you, would you like to you know, try out, basically? And so she asked me to write three like tryout columns. Yeah. And she said, okay, we're going we're gonna to have you compete. We're going to run you against a gardening expert and a, a wine expert. <laughs> and, and, and so- You're like, wow, this better be good. I, well, <laughs> and so I was like, I, I, I'm not tooting my own horn. And at the same time, I was like, well, people want to know about themselves. You know, people are curious about, about what makes them tick. And so I'm pretty sure psychology is going to come out in, in front. And and so it, it happened that, that it did. And- and then she said, "Okay, well, here let's 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 give you a podcast," and and then that's when everything kind of stopped. I said, "Wait a minute, I have to be a performer. I got into this to be a writer. <laughs> I had not. I did it never occurred to me that this was going to turn into me talking into a microphone. That was just that was at that time of my life. That was just something that I never pictured ever before. And so I learned in public." And if I go back and listen to my first recordings, I cringe because they're so awkward and slow. But I totally get that. That's, that's not your recording. No, no, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> that, that, and, that, and I'm realizing as as I try more new endeavors, like writing a book or you know just any 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 new thing that I try, from you know from from learning how Twitter works or to you know trying to sign my kids up for a new summer camp, like that matches this week's interests. Like every time I do something new, I feel a little incompetent, you know, like you just kind of flail around for like, is this what's working? How do I do this? How does, you know? And, and so, but I'm realizing that that is just how it works, that, that you just push through feeling incompetent. And, and then again, that, that, and then again, the confidence, you know, catches up. You're like, oh, I can do this. Or, oh, this is how this works. Oh, and that uncertainty ratchets down as you go through it. And so, so yeah, I learned in public to do a podcast, learned in public to write a book, and I've just continued to to do that. Yeah, but I mean, it 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 feels like you're genuinely lit up by sort of mm, like the, mm, the, mm. the the mix of what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. You know, blend of seeing still seeing clients. Absolutely, right? yeah. So that's almost like it's like that's your laboratory. Yep. Like, and then you have time to think and, mm-hmm. and integrate and formulate. Then you have time to. To bring the stories and the ideas to people through, you know, like different forms of media. Right. And it, you know, like feels like from the outside looking in that, mm. that you've kind of dialed in something that makes you smile. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I often have students come to my office and say, oh, Dr. Hendrickson, can I talk to you for a little bit? How, how did you, how, did you, how are you doing <laughs> what you're doing? As those visits have increased, it's made me reflect and, and say, wow, you know. I'm living the dream. (laughs) This is pretty cool. And the thing that is, that still blows me away though, is that it, that what I'm doing now is inexorably tied up with the thing that brought me the most shame, which is social anxiety and thinking that something was wrong with me. Because like, as I've gone through my life, the, you know, that, that inner critic, that, that little voice that tells you that something's wrong with you has evolved based on my kind of social surroundings. So like in college where a social life is very important, that little voice was like, you're a loser. Like when I was starting my career, the little voice was, you're incompetent. And, you know, when I was writing the book, certainly the voice was quieter by then. You know, I've, I'd gotten older. I'd done a lot of work. 
but it was when I was trying to email luminary and academic luminaries of psychology and ask to interview them about this you know book about social anxiety from an unknown writer that little voice came back and said you're annoying and so just the the fact that the mix of things that I'm doing all centers around this thing that I was that made me so miserable for so long is is just unbelievable to me yeah and pretty cool. And pretty cool. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Absolutely. Which, which feels like a, a good, yeah. good sort of a place for um, uh, us to come full circle sure. as well. So hanging out here in the context of this thing we call a good life project. So if I offer out the phrase to live a good life, what comes up mm, for you? Absolutely. So I, I think, okay, so I'm going to crib from Freud cool. here. <laughs> so I'm not a Freudian, but because he was wrong about a lot of things, but he did get some things absolutely right. And one of them, in my opinion, was that to live a good life, you need to love and work. And so love, I think, is pretty self-explanatory to surround yourself with the people you love and who love you, whether that's family or friends as family, or if you have a partner or kids, then yes, absolutely. Those those people are your, your core and will really determine so much of your happiness and your health, it turns out. And then in terms of to work, I actually interpret that as purpose, because work doesn't have to be Paid. It could be, you know, you could be a stay-at-home parent, or you could have a side hustle, or it could be your your actual career. But whatever gets you out of bed in the morning, whatever your purpose is, that is your work. And so I think with a little help from Freud, that to love and to work makes a good life. Mm, thank you. Thank you. It was a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make the show possible. You can check them out in the links that we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends. When ideas become conversations that lead to action, that is when real change takes hold. See you next time.